This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. All right, welcome back to the show. Mike Smith in for Simi. Little Weird Al Yankovic there for you. I lost on Jeopardy. Did you watch Jeopardy last night? You had the uh, professional gambler James Holtzhauer. This is the guy who was on that historical run on Jeopardy and challenging Ken Jennings there for the record. This guy is just a machine. All he does is win, and he wins big on Jeopardy. Last night, though came up short i thought it was a strange bet he made at the end on final jeopardy there he didn't make a very big bet at the end and it it cost him i thought this guy's supposed to be a professional gambler and he didn't he didn't bet big at the end and he lost so that's our hot question of the day james holtzhauer's historical run on jeopardy is over don't cry too many tears for the guy he still won 2.46 million bucks but were you pulling for him to set the all-time record. Would you say, yes, you're disappointed that he lost? Or would you say, no, Ken Jennings will always be the best? Or would you say, I don't care at all that this guy lost on Jeopardy? Here's how you vote on this today, at CKNW on Twitter. That's where you'll find the hot question of the day. Please follow me while you're there, at Mike Smith News on Twitter, SM. Y-T-H, at Mike Smith News on Twitter. I'll have the hot question posted there as well. Also, call me on the buzz line in this today and tell me what you think. 604-331-BUZZ is the number to call. Let's talk about the police in Surrey. The city yesterday released their long-awaited report on transitioning from the RCMP to a local municipal police force, as promised by Mayor Doug McCallum. McCallum said uh, there will be more uh, frontline police officers with this plan. But there is controversy around the numbers in this report. Here's McCallum. A good part of the report suggests that the RCMP is top-heavy in management and that our residents, and if you're looking at Vancouver City Police, that they want to, our residents want more officers on patrol. Um, and that's in this report. I think if you look at the thing, it says 16% more frontline officers that will be on the streets. That will mean less management or less upper structure. We need to change our um, structure so that we are putting a lot more officers out on our streets rather than sitting um, in management rules. Uh, Surrey Mayor Doug McCallum yesterday. Let's check in now with Surrey City Councilor Linda, uh, Linda Annis. She's with the Surrey First Party on Council. Hi, Councilor. Thanks for coming on. My pleasure, What's your reaction to the report that came out yesterday? Well, I'm very, very uh, disturbed by it. Uh, We should be staffing up, not staffing down. I find it quite shocking that we're reducing the number of police. Um, We did consult uh, with the Vancouver Police Department, so assuming that we're using a similar model to uh, to them and that our population is roughly uh, 85% of Vancouver, we should have some 300 more members. We should not be staffing down. Okay, what do you think about the, there's a there's kind of a numbers game going on here that the RCMP says there's 843 
police officers now. Uh, the plan rolled out by the mayor yesterday calls for 805 officers. So you're right. Obviously, that's a smaller number. But you also have the mayor saying, well, the actual number of RCMP officers right now is 792 because there's a bunch of vacancies. Are you buying that? No, there is not. Uh, I have confirmed with the chief. There are currently 843 members serving uh, the right. city of Surrey. Uh, from time to time, obviously, you know, there are retirements and people off on long-term disability, but that's backfilled uh, with other members. So there currently are 843 uh patrolling the streets of Surrey. So what's what do you think about what the mayor is saying, that this number from the RCMP is not true, and he's only saying there's 792? What is that, just spin, baffle gab from the mayor? How do you, how do you characterize that? Well, I think what he's doing is he's uh, looking at ones that the city is currently funding, um, you know, and I can't comment on how the mayor has reached his numbers. Uh, I wasn't part of that uh, conversation. Uh, quite frankly, the whole development of this uh, transition plan didn't include council and didn't include the people of Surrey, uh, which also very much disturbs me. Uh, we should have been involved, and even more importantly, the residents of Surrey should have been consulted as the report was being developed, not after the fact. Okay, so the bottom line for you is that this is a municipal police force that's going to have less cops and cost more, right? Bottom line, you've got that 100%. Yeah, what do you think of that? I think it's fundamentally wrong. Um, there's going to be no... Uh, uh, people in Surrey aren't going to feel safer, um, but they're going to have to pay more. And really, in the end of the day, all we're doing is switching badges. We're not changing uh, the way policing is going to be done in Surrey. And quite frankly, I think we're opening our doors for criminals and gangs to say, here, we're open for business. We've got less cops and our population is growing at the rate of 10,000 people per year. But what do you think about what the mayor said there in that clip we played, saying that they're going to transition more police officers to the front line, so there will be more police officers on the street, visible, walking a beat, out fighting these crooks on the street, and you're going to have less, I guess, staff sergeants or management or whatever back at headquarters sitting at a desk. Doesn't that, does that reassure you at all? Absolutely not. Uh, part of uh, the numbers that he's quoting includes community policing personnel. Uh, these personnel uh, are uh, will be utilized uh, for customer service, uh, as the report indicated, for community engagement, and for personal crisis. Um, that's not what we need. Certainly, we need to have... Um, police out in the public, but we need them to be out protecting us. The community safety officers also, you know, don't carry guns. Um, so, you know, mm. if personal crisis uh, situations escalate, um, they're on their own with um, no way to um, be able to uh, react. They would have to call in for um, armed officers to assist. Okay, I'm speaking to Surrey City Councillor Linda Annis. She's not happy with this police report out yesterday. Councillor, what do you think should be done now? Do you guys, do you think Surrey should stick with the RCMP? Well, I think that, uh, first of all, we have to go through the process. We need to hear what the provincial government wants. And quite frankly, I think the next step is, is, is looking at the policing model and looking the way it should be and asking the people of Surrey to decide what they would like after we seek their engagement. And I think the engagement has to be done with the facts on the table, not without the report uh, for the people. Well, what does that mean? Like you just, you mean have it, put it off, put it off until another election or you have a referendum on it? How are you going to let the people decide this? 
Well, what needs to happen first, the province ultimately has to make a decision whether or not we can, if the people of Surrey right. want to make the change, because they look at the overall policing for the province and for the lower mainland, and they have to make sure that no community safety is put at risk by this plan, including Surrey or including any of the other districts that uh, are in the lower mainland. So that's step one. Step two is um, once we've uh, reached and, and found out what that's going to look like, we need to be able to communicate it to the people and have some sort of a referendum to decide whether indeed they want that. Switching the badges isn't going to make a difference to anyone's comfort uh, around public safety, and particularly when it's going to cost them more. Okay, you clearly think that this plan, if it's implemented, would make the city less safe? that be fair to Absol- say? Absolutely. Less police officers when you actually need more fundamentally doesn't make sense in in British Columbia's largest growing municipality that's getting an extra 10,000 people per year. How can you rationalize having more police officers? Doesn't make sense to me. Well, would you therefore call on the provincial government to reject this plan and not implement it, not approve it? I, I absolutely think the way the plan is laid out right now, they should not be approving it. Wow, okay. Well, what do you say to the people of Surrey who voted for this plan? I mean, McCallum rolled here in this election. He's got a big majority on council. Does he not have a mandate uh, to to implement this? Absolutely not. He had 13% of the eligible voters in Surrey support uh, him. 13% doesn't give you a mandate. What do you think of the cost uh, breakdown here? I mean, the mayor had said frequently that this would cost another 10% a year. Uh, in the uh, pol- the city's policing budget, which I understand this year is 151 million, the first year budget for this new municipal police force two years from now would be 192 and a half million. Uh, math is was not my best subject at school, but that that to me is like about a 24 percent increase, not a not a 10 percent increase. But anyway, he's saying it's an 11 percent budget lift. What do you think about the cost? Well, I. I- The costs make no sense to me. I've gone through the report. Uh, There's no detail in terms of how he's arrived at that number. Uh, I don't see anywhere in the report where the uh, breakdown is for the actual transition costs. I've asked for more detail because it's hard to make a comment on a number when you can't see how it's been arrived at. Um, That, too, um, I have very little comfort with. What about the the idea of a municipal police force in principle? Are you against the idea in principle, or you just think that it's got to be properly set up? Well, I we think what you I think what you need to do is is look at an overall policing model for any city and how can it serve the residents better. Switching yeah. badges isn't going to make a change. Uh, you know that's not the issue for Surrey. That's not the issue for any municipality. Is the way in which. Uh, the city is is policed, and I think that's where we need to be looking. We currently are very underserved by the number of members, uh, and I think the RCMP have done the very best that they possibly could with the tools that they were given. And it it really is very frustrating because uh, the chief, um, uh, Dwayne McDonald's last uh, budget, asked the city for just 12 new members, and it was rejected. And how can you do that when you've got population moving into Surrey so quickly just doesn't make sense. Councillor, thank you for coming on today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. You bet. That's Linda Annis, Surrey City Councillor. She's with the Surrey First Party.
boy, so much controversy over this plan for transitioning to a local police force in the city of Surrey. Yesterday, Mayor Doug McCallum rolled out that long-awaited plan to get rid of the RCMP, bring in a local municipal police force by 2021. This will be up to the B.C. government now to approve this plan or not. Uh, earlier on the show, I spoke to Vancouver City Councilor uh, Linda Annis. She is with the Surrey First Party at City Hall, so not the same party as McCallum. She was very critical of this plan. She says it will make the city less safe, effectively hoping the provincial government rejects it. Something to keep in mind that a caller on the open line brought up. I thought it was a great point. She voted to get rid of the RCMP. That was a unanimous vote at Surrey City Council to get rid of the Mounties and bring in a local police force. And Linda Annis, who's now vehemently opposed to the whole idea, she voted for it. Just going back to what she said at the time, she said she wanted to support Mayor McCallum and the council because this is one of their major platform issues. She voted to get rid of the RCMP. Now, I guess she doesn't like the the plan that's coming in and probably regrets that vote. Getting lots of other reaction, too. Have a listen to this. This is Stuart Parker. He's the former leader of the B.C. Green Party. He ran for Surrey City Council with the Proudly Surrey Party. This is what he thinks. Well, what's revealed is what's kept being revealed, which is that Doug McCallum is a charlatan, and this is a ridiculous plan. It's not an internally consistent report. It uh, switches the statistics it's using and the metrics it's using from one section to the next. There are different reasons for using the figure 792 and 843 officers, but um, they switch those figures irresponsibly and in order to produce a preconceived outcome. The report very clearly is a plan which it states to reduce the number of police officers in Surrey. I do not believe that any person who voted for Doug McCallum in good faith intended that casting their vote would put fewer officers on the street doing law enforcement in Surrey. It's an outrage that this plan is going forward. Okay, Stuart Parker, let's get the other side of it now. Surrey City Councillor Lori Guara, she is with the Safe Surrey Coalition. I'm very pleased to welcome her. Councillor, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Mike. How do you respond to the criticism in the mayor's plan here? Well, first of all, off the top, you said that uh, Councillor Annis was a Vancouver councillor. I'd like to uh, oh, just to, to clarify that she is a Surrey City Councillor, oh, elected fair and square, just like the rest of us. Thank you um, for that. Um, I did. I was listening to your comments at the top, and um, I guess I guess the confusion for me has always been that. Um, we all voted unanimously in favor of the transition to a municipal police force, all, all of right. us, whether it be Councillor Annis or, or all the rest of the Safe Surrey Coalition that was elected. And so I would question um, with the report coming out, and I'm, I'm thrilled at the report. I, I don't see where um, there, was, there was a criticism, um, a speculative criticism about the report that it was going to, you know, it was going to cost hundreds of millions of dollars to change it over. Well, now, the, you know, the figures are in. And whether you 
you know, agree with the report. It's done by, you know, the top professionals and experts in, in the industry. Um, so, you know, and I'm no expert in policing, but we have hired and, and contracted the people that are, and yeah. they've put out the report, and, you know, it's all itemized in there exactly what, that, what we can expect from it. Okay, Councillor Ann has told me earlier on the show that this, this plan would produce fewer cops in Surrey, not more, in a city that is growing rapidly and you need more police officers. What do you say to that? Well, I say look at the report. Look at it for yourself, and there's a... Um there's a, a kind of a, a summary of the report in a pamphlet, and we're going to—that's that's being given out um, at all the consultation processes um, that we're having, and so all the consultations. Um, when you look at the key benefits of it, it says five percent increase in staff overall, sixteen percent more frontline officers, and twenty-nine percent more school liaison and youth officers. Now you can criticize the report, but again, it's been um, the report's been audited by PricewaterhouseCoopers. I don't think. I think any of us would argue that they're very uh, professional in what they do, and uh, it's been audited or, or uh, um, authored by Dr. Kurt Griffiths, who is an expert in the country in policing and in and transition plans for for police transitions. What do you say to people though who are seizing on some of these numbers, specifically the RCMP, saying that their current force in the city of Surrey is 843 officers? This plan for a local municipal police force is for 805 officers that's that's less cops that's 38 less cops well i would say look to the current staffing model that is um is highlighted in this police transition document that is available to everyone and it does specifically say that the Surrey RCMP detachment has an authorized strength of 843 RCMP members as of 2019 although it currently carries 51 vacancies so as a result the Surrey RCMP has a funded strength of 792 officers now that's directly quoted from this report you you can believe it or not this is the report so um, yeah. I would. That's what I would say to that. What is your message now to the provincial government as as they look at this report and consider whether to approve it? My message would be that we were clear when when the Safe Surrey Coalition ran with the mayoral candidate Doug McCallum at the time. Um, we were very clear on the three pillars of our campaign, and one of those pillars was a transition to the uh, from the RCMP to the Surrey Municipal. Uh, police. I think if a city unanimously votes in favor of that, um, councillors and mayor, that um, we should get what we want. And I believe that to be the, um, you know, the Surrey Police Department. What kind of me- what would you say to taxpayers in the city of Surrey when they're taking a look at the numbers in this report and the projected costs? I mean, some people are wondering, well, are are these numbers kind of low-balled? You got to bring in a brand new IT system. There's all kinds of other cost pressures here. Can you really deliver? Uh, this scale of a transition for the cost that's on the piece of paper, can you, can you guarantee taxpayers you're going to hit these budget targets? 
I can guarantee taxpayers what we promised in the election, and we did that for this year. Um, we said we would increase taxes only to, um, you know, the rate of inflation. And when you look at the, tri- the transition financial projections in this document, you can see that it it's explicitly states that um, there was a 10.9% annual cost increase from going to a Surrey-operated model. However, there's a little rider on that that says if the RCMP go to a, a unionized uh, uh, police department, which they, um, from what I've heard, they are definitely going unionized, that it's going to be straight across the board. The costs are going to be the same. So oh. that in itself is, is I, w- I found that to be quite surprising. So in essence, if we compare apples to apples, we are going to be, it's going to be um, no increasing of costs. Now, I'm not talking the capital costs or the transition costs, because there will be, yeah. you know, we have to make sure that the city of Surrey provide, and I know the RCMP are really on board with this, and the, the province, everybody is on board with providing the, the, the highest degree of public safety that we can through the transition process. So there's right. no, you know, our, there's no um, conflict on that at all. But at the end of the day, if it looks like having our own police department is, event, is going to cost the same amount when compared apples to apples and the wages, a wage parity for our unionized members, then I think it's a win-win. Councillor, thank you for coming on. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you. That's Councillor Lori Guerra, Surrey City Councillor. She's with the Safe Surrey Coalition. Let's talk about the recently announced gas price inquiry in British Columbia. This is the inquiry announced by Premier John Horgan. It will be done by the BC Utilities Commission. They will look into why gas prices are so high, especially in Metro Vancouver. But look at some of the fine print of the terms of reference of this inquiry. This inquiry will not investigate the role of provincial taxes on high gas prices. Now, we kind of knew that already, that Horgan was going to shield himself from criticism in this inquiry. The ga- Putting the uh, impact of gas taxes off the table is a joke. But here's the other one that jumps out at me today in the story in the Vancouver Sun. It says it's unlikely, unlikely that this so-called inquiry or review will take a look at the impact of the Trans Mountain Expansion Pipeline Project and whether it could reduce gas prices in Metro Vancouver. That just makes this inquiry to me a total joke. I mean, you got to look at that pipeline but as a potential impact it will have on gas prices. If you don't, if you don't examine this pipeline, if you don't take a look at the impact of taxes, which are the highest in North America, what kind of an inquiry is that? To me, that's just a political stunt that the premier has dreamed up here because he's getting heat on high gas prices. Let's check in with Peter Millibar now. He's a BC Liberal MLA uh, for Kamloops North Thompson. Very pleased you could join us. Hi. Hi, thanks for having me on. Thanks for coming on. What do you think of this inquiry? Well, I, I think you summed it up best. It's it's certainly not a forward-looking exercise. It's not one that the government wants to have any of their policies uh, looked at. And, and another policy that they could have looked at is uh, what impact the low-carbon fuel standard in Clean BC will do to the added uh, price at the pump. Uh, none of the Premier, the Finance Minister, the Environment Minister, or the Energy Minister would answer that question to me in estimates. 
Um, they're not going to allow the BCUC to look at that. And why it's important is that's almost 25% of uh, Clean BC's goals for emissions tied to that one fuel standard. So I think uh, for this to be meaningful, it needs to be a forward-looking thing. It needs to be something to understand what Trans Mountain would mean uh, to fuel supply in the Lower Mainland and the rest of the province, what government policies uh, do or don't have to do uh, with impacting price of the pump, as well as what obviously what the taxation that the province directly controls. And so for this to be a backwards-looking exercise is, I think, a waste of everyone's time. What is the that low-carbon fuel standard and how does it impact gas prices in B.C.? So right now we have a, a 10% ethanol blend, uh, and that was brought in by the previous government. It adds about one cent a litre. We've been clean, clear about that and, and upfront about that. The premiers confirmed that as well. Uh, under Clean BC, it's to go to a 20% standard, which will uh, reduce about four megatons of emissions out of uh, Clean BC. And that's, like I say, about 25% of their overall goal. And uh, it will add costs. It's not produced on, uh, in any meaningful way in Washington. It's not produced in Alberta. It's not produced in B.C. right now. Um, so we will have this uh, artisanal blend of gasoline, and, and the government does not want to acknowledge uh, even remotely what, what estimate it will cost per litre more at the pump when this fuel standard comes into play. Okay, you guys have highlighted that this inquiry will not take a look at the impact of provincial gas taxes on the price at the pump. What is the impact? What is the the point of that? I mean, we already know what the exactly what the taxation rates are on a liter of gas. So, what would be the point of including that in the terms of reference of an inquiry? We already know what the impact is from taxes. Well, one would hope that the inquiry would have uh, been able to come up with with some uh, solutions or some options for the government to try to action. And, and if you take a look at uh, government policy and government taxation, that may uh, be part of a blend of of uh, options for people. Let's remember, it was a year ago that the Premier said um, that as gas prices rise, he would be looking at options and acting upon those options. Uh, It's the Premier that has refused to even acknowledge even what one of those options was over the last year. We've heard a litany of different reasons from the Premier's office, culminating in this uh, BCUC review, which is really just a a backwards-looking exercise. It is not going to help anyone uh, moving forward. What would you guys do about gas taxes? Well, I, I think gas taxes are one component that the, the government uh, very much controls. And, and we've said, uh, you know, there, there comes a time when you do have to start looking at ways. Um, is there temporary measures you can put in place until uh, prices moderate back down, until supply um, levels hit a point where um, uh, the prices are more in line with what you're seeing in the rest of Canada, let alone Washington State. Um, it doesn't mean that you would necessarily wipe taxes out 100% uh, for eternity, but I think there are levers that the government can, can do uh, to, to signal to people that they are willing to try to actually address people's affordability issues around uh, gasoline costs. Yeah. Um, and, and try to keep those prices low. It what doesn't it? mean it, it. It doesn't mean it magically works, but at least the government is trying to actually do something. So, what does that mean? You'd cut gas taxes. That's what we said. We would look at temporary measures um, in terms of gas tax revenues to try to bring the prices down uh, and see if that uh, can help ease people's. By how much? How much? How much would you cut gas price taxes by? Well, it would depend on what's going on in the situation right now. I would suggest you would have to be a fairly uh, aggressive look at those. Um, part of the problem is uh, you have a, a myriad of taxes uh, in the system. So if you're in Metro Vancouver, you have a TransLink tax. In Camelot, we don't. 
Uh, there's a provincial levy that's 1.75 cents a litre in the lower mainland, but it's that same levy in, in Kamloops in the interior, 6.75 cents. So it, it gets to be a, a complicated mix of taxation when you're getting into this. The point being that as a government, you'd need to be sitting down, you would need to be willing to have those open conversations and certainly not floating out a year ahead of time that you're working on options and then refusing to even talk about what one of the options may or may not have been a year ago. Yeah, but what I'm saying to you, though, is if you take a look at the provincial bite from taxes on a litre of gas, I mean, even if you guys cut it by 10%, you're going to save a few pennies a litre. What difference is that going to make? Well, uh, a few cents a litre when you're, especially if you're in the interior and you drive uh, heavy mileage, um, as people do in my riding, uh, starts to make a significant difference. Let's remember um, the the, uh, trade minister's response in question period for people wanting to save a few cents a litre, his his magical solution was that people should go out and get a Costco card. And he actually said that in question period as part of his answer. So, um, you know, I would suggest that the government should be a little more proactive on things they control in terms of the taxation level. Uh, try to drive that few cents a litre. That's what they directly can control. Um, and then try to work to, to get the supply back up and, and to actually take a serious look at what their actions okay. towards things like Trans Mountain are doing to our fuel supply as our, our as our population continues to grow. Okay, speaking to Liberal MLA Peter Millobar about the BC government's gas price inquiry, you just touched on something there that jumped out at me today, and that is the impact of the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion project, which it appears that this inquiry will not take a deep look at the impact of whether if you completed that uh, twinning of that pipeline, could it potentially impact gas prices in the lower mainland? Some people have said, look, if you increase the capacity for the delivery of refined fuel into Metro Vancouver, of course, that that's going to help gas prices in Metro Vancouver. Do you think that this inquiry should at least look at that, look at the potential for that pipeline project to, to cut gas prices? Well, I absolutely think it should, but that would not, uh, you know, fit the government narrative. I went on a tour of spill response uh, procedures and processes um, on Friday. Uh, the whole NDP caucus was invited to it. Not one member uh, decided to go, as well as other tours that they've been invited to in the past. Because if you, if you understand what's actually being proposed, it cuts away at the narrative you're trying to use. And and same. And we talked about uh, the fuel supply issue, and we talked about on that tour about uh, the twinning of the pipeline. Uh, the, the complexities about uh, the moving of the goods through that pipeline and how um, it, it actually does have that potential to have a, a different mix of, of uh, fuels being able to be brought through if there was a more steady supply uh, of the heavier oils in the twin line. How would you get that mix? Like, if, if you're going to have as an objective to get more refined fuel into that pipe, which even Horgan says would be a good thing, what kind of leverage could a provincial government bring to bear on something like that? What do you do? Do you sit down and talk turkey with Jason Kenney and the oil companies and say, look, if you want us to change our tune in this pipeline, how about some guarantee that we're going to get more refined fuels delivered to our the people who need it here in Metro Vancouver as a, as a price for us supporting it? Do you think that would be a reasonable approach? Well, my understanding is that is the whole um, permitting process that the existing pipeline operates under and how they have to open up access to to any and all uh, people with their product. Let's remember, this is essentially a, it's a transportation corridor. They don't own the product in the line, um, and they, they provide space to people that want to get into that transportation corridor. 
Um, when you twin the line, you do expand some capacity uh, potential, especially by moving uh, some of the heavier uh, oils off onto the second line. And it does enable that uh, possibility then to start having some conversations and trying to figure out how do we modernize um, you know, the, the way things are being shipped between the two lines when you have that flexibility. But right now you have a 65-year-old line um, that is trying to balance off the needs of both exporters as well as uh, domestic use. And uh, there's, a, there's a secondary line being proposed that would actually help on the export side, which could uh, free up more uh, domestic use uh, space. Thanks for coming on. Great. Thanks so much. That's Peter Millibar, B.C. Liberal MLA for Kamloops North Thompson, talking about the B.C. government's gas price inquiry at Langley Memorial Hospital to Victoria today. He's collected thousands of signatures against the parking fees at Langley Memorial. You know this has been a dispute and a controversy at other hospitals as well. Let's check in now with... Gary He, the petition organizer. Gary. Good morning. Good afternoon, Mike. Sorry for that mistake. Yes, I hear I am here in Victoria. Gary, thanks for coming on today. How much uh, how many signatures have you collected on your petition to stop the pay parking at Langley Memorial? The last count was three thousand one hundred and seventy two. Why are you and so more- pa- more people wanted to sign up, but I had a deadline to cut off. Gary, how did you get involved in this? How did, how did you end up taking on this cause? Well, there are many reasons, Mike, and it's a very complex situation. We hear a lot of, of people complaining about the hospital fees in, in other hospitals because they're higher in the downtown area. However, um, it's a combination of many things that affected me. Uh, my own family, uh, we've had bad experiences with uh, some relatives having cancer, and others had to have operations uh, immediately. I myself wound up in the Langley Memorial Hospital Emergency Department because I had uh, a case with uh, a foreign object in my throat. I had to have check for um, infection. So I was in there for four hours, but it wasn't that that just caused me to go, to create this petition. It was many things. Um, I think the the, few, the match that lit the fuse was when uh, the Surrey Memorial Hospital newly elected mayor decided to have free parking on the side of the street. Yeah, uh, that was Doug McCollum, and then we knew that uh, Lois Jackson down in Delta uh, refused to have uh, toll, I mean, um, parking charges on the. So the combination of those two uh, politicians and mayors got me thinking: what, what does it take for Langley Memorial Hospital to be free? And after um, a couple of days of thinking, I figured two hours is insufficient. Four is probably more realistic in reality because people are waiting in the waiting room for several hours. I know I'm not going to get 100% entirely free for everybody, but I have to focus on the most important one, which is emergency patients. Okay, so you believe, Gary, that you should get four hours of free parking outside the emergency room. 
right? Yes. And the reason for that is many of the patients who go there are forced to wait in a lineup that could be several hours long. And during that time, they're not able to leave to have somebody move their car into a lower price area. And so I figured four is the magic number. How much does it cost to park there right now? From what I hear, if you go into the emergency department, it's four fifty an hour. However, where the far lot is, it's three dollars and fifty cents. So for two hours, it's between seven dollars and nine dollars for two hours. What kind of impact does this fee? Do these fees have on people who are got to visit the hospital themselves, or maybe that they're visiting a loved one? Well, to my surprise, people are actually buying me drinks and food because. They were so angry and frustrated that nobody wanted to do anything until April the 12th, 2019, until now, June the 4th, 2019. So I guess I'm the very first to step forward and devote some time, make the sacrifices, and provide it with, uh, how should I say, voluntary work on my own during the rain, wind, hail, and and blistering sun. Hey, so Gary, it's very I, complex. I know when you were down there collecting signatures at times, you sometimes you were down right at the hospital collecting signatures on your petition. Did you yes. did you run into any, any trouble there with hospital officials telling you not to do that? That's a very touchy subject, and the answer is yes, I did run into problems. Specifically, somebody came up to me, and he said, I am at the head of the hospital. Mm. And after a short conversation, he decided to say, if I don't go now, I would be asked to be removed by security. So having heard that, I left. And the next day, I went back. I stood <laughs> on this road, road yeah. on the sidewalk, and... He saw me in the morning when he got on shift, and then he did send two staff employees to me up to the sidewalk. And at that point, the two said, I have to go. I have to go to the end of the road because the road I'm standing on was private property. So I thought, well, how can a private property have a number like 221A Street? To me, that's municipal. I could be wrong, and I stand corrected. So I went to the end. I was going to go to the end of the road, but yeah. I told these two fellows in blue suits that I will leave. And they told me that the uh, place to go was the end of the road, and I said, I'm leaving. Okay. So hey, hey Gary, Gary, how old are you? 74 and a half, and next July I'll be 75, uh, plus a month or two. 74 okay. and 10 months. Okay, you're almost 75 years old, and you're taking on taking on this cause. What's driving you on this? You just think these, these fees are unfair? There's three reasons. The average 75-year-old who figures this is unfair would not do it. The 75-year-old is probably a retiree or a snowbird who vacations and goes on voyage. Forage trips, cruisers all the time. Me, 
No, I'm a different type of character. I petitioned many governments in the past. I petitioned the provincial government in the past, and I petitioned municipal government in the past. And also, I have been very successful in helping to get the bridge toes on Poor Man and Go Near Bridge removed. I helped to put in road safety on 72 Avenue and 196 between 200 Street, and I was successful in getting the other thing, harmonized sales tax removed with the retired Premier Bill Vandersnap. So yep. with all those three incidents of experience, this one, which has a cause, which is more community-related, is a necessity one to help people who are less able to help themselves. I took this on, volunteered by myself, without anybody else knowing how to do it. I you're, had the experience, and I did it. You're a man who puts his beliefs into action, that's for sure, Gary. Gary, what do you say to the hospital administrators or the officials who say, look, we take this money that we collect in ho- in parking fees and we put that into services in the hospital? How would you respond to that? I would say this, gentlemen and ladies, you had $980,000 in your saving account for a good part of the time until one of the private citizens dollar matched you $980,000 for the new expansion and for new equipment. Together, you have approximately $1.8 million that you've been collecting interest on and at the same time, you're causing unemployed people, senior citizens, injured for to pay $4.50 per hour for an emergency. For heaven's sake, why don't you give them something? Because there are people donating their assets to you, and you're not giving anything back to the people in need. Okay, Gary, last question for you. Who are you hoping to give your petition to today at the legislature? In Victoria, I presented it to the mailroom man, the mailroom man, who in turn will take it to the department Ministry of Health in Victoria, D.C. From there, it would be directly addressed to the minister in charge of health, and that would be Adrian Dix. Okay. All right, Gary. Good for you, man. Thanks for coming on today. You're welcome. All right. It's Gary. He, he's the petition organizer fighting those parking fees. Let's talk now about outdoor cats. And how many birds that cats kill on a daily basis? And let me tell you something. It's a slaughter out there. You check out some of these numbers. It's just, Check this out. It's estimated that domestic cats in Canada kill between 100 and 350 million birds every year. That's extraordinary. But I'll tell you what, I believe it. I'm not a cat person myself. I got a dog at home, but I, I always remember my buddy's cat. This cat was a stone-cold killer of birds. This was like the John Wick of cats. It got so bad, my buddy put a bell on the cat's collar. And You know what? That didn't slow down this cat's kill rate at all. This cat learned how to tuck that bell in into his chin and move extra slowly 
to prevent the bell from making any noise, and the cat was still just as lethal as before. And it's a damn shame. I mean, that's a lot of dead birds. I mean, that's that's kind of heartbreaking when you think about all those birds getting killed by cats. Well, let me introduce you now to a researcher who wants to do something about it. Is Ken Otter. He is a biologist at the University of Northern BC. He's got a really interesting research project on this. I'm very pleased to welcome him to the show. Hiya, Ken. Hi, how you doing? Great. Thanks a lot for coming on. So that number I just quoted there of the millions of birds being uh, killed by cats every year, is that how do you how do you uh, estimate a number like that? That's a big number. It is a big number. It's uh, it's it's estimated it was from a paper that was done uh, several years ago um, and published in a Canadian journal of uh, bird conservation. And it's it's done by trying to estimate the number of owned cats trying to figure out what proportion of those own cats are likely to be outdoor cats, uh, then take into account um, what the average number of uh, bird kills per cat is per year, um, and then sort of extrapolate those up, uh, extrapolate how many, if, if we know how many domestic cats we have, how many feral cats are likely to uh, be out there as well. So it, it has a number of assumptions built into it, but there's just such a large number of owned cats uh, in the country yeah. that uh, that it, the numbers end up coming out quite significant. Yeah, I mean that's an extraordinary number. Imagine 350 million. Like that's like that's like a million birds a day almost. Uh, yes, right? and it's it's coming from an estimate of the the numbers in that paper were estimated at about 8.5 million owned cats. Uh, in in the country. So that's where a lot of that is coming from. It's just an awful lot of owned cats. And so even if only a proportion of those are going outside, it's still uh, a significant number of cats. Okay, let's talk about your research there at the University of Northern BC, Ken. You're doing some uh, an interesting study on the use of high-visibility collars on cats, right, and whether this could make a difference in in the number of uh, bird kills. Yeah, and this is a, a, a something that's come onto the market uh, recently, people have noticed that, as you, as you mentioned earlier, um, bells on the uh, sound, sound devices on collars don't work particularly well because yeah. the, the cats can, those cats are stealth predators. And uh, um, so they, they basically make their kills by sneaking up and not being noticed. And they get very good at being able to learn how to uh, sort of suppress the sound of the, the bells just by moving very, very slowly right. and and then sitting in wait and then jumping out. And by that time, it's too late for the bird to, to detect them by the sound. So these collars work by using um, colors instead. And so the, they're actually very brightly colored, uh, lots of yellows and reds and oranges which are frequencies that birds are very, very sensitive to. And that's part of the reason why uh, a lot of their feathers are colored in those kind of color ranges. Um, but other, other things that cats might kill, like rats or um, house mice and things like that, um, don't see those colors or perceive those colors as easily as birds do. And so the idea is it allows birds to detect the cat's presence early enough that they can escape uh, so that they're... Um, they, they, the cats just can't sneak up on them. Right, because okay, so the birds can visually see these colors uh, even if the cat's moving slowly. Yes, yeah. Birds yeah. birds have an extra color receptor in their eye than we do, so they they actually see colors better than we do over a broader uh, spectrum range. Um, 
and and humans are better than in turn most other mammals most other mammals only have two different color receptors in their eyes whereas we have three and so effectively um, they're uh, red green colorblind so most rodents yeah. and things like that are red green colorblind just don't pick these colors up very well Okay, I saw a picture online that you handed out can of of a, of a cat wearing one of these collars, and it look it looks a little funny because like it's a pretty big, flashy collar, it, and it, it is, know. yeah, and that that's actually my cat. Um, oh, okay, who's who's largely an indoor cat, so she doesn't really go outside too much. But she was a good model for the collar. Um, she the the collars are. They look like scrunchies. They look like hair yeah. scrunchies you put around the the cat's regular collar. So there's a it's just a fabric tube um, around the collar, uh, and you just have a breakaway collar underneath it in case it gets caught. But it kind of looks like a like the best description is like a, a colorful hair scrunchie, like a rainbow hair scrunchie yeah. around the cat's neck. Um, and so it's pretty obvious. Um, uh, we have our cat. Our cat doesn't really catch much uh, and it mostly stays in our backyard but it's really easy to find her when she's got it uh on you can see her from a long ways off and this is the idea behind it yeah uh, for the sure birds just literally see her they she can't hide in the bushes because she's got this great big rainbow collar on so you can yeah. spot her when she's in the in the bushes really easily no i think it's an amazing idea because when you see the photo uh, of this collar you think like wow that really does stand out and you can see how it could potentially be effective tell me a little bit about the uh the study that you're doing there in prince george on this well what we're doing is we're asking people um in various neighborhoods around prince george prince george has a lot of green space uh and a lot of uh birds that that are in the city um it's yeah. a very forested city and so we're asking people in specific neighborhoods uh to take part in the study and then what we do is we give them a log book they just record when their cat when they let their cat out when they let it back in so we get some idea of how much time they're spending outside and then they alternate over the course of the summer whether they let the cat out for a week with without the collar and then a week with the collar and back and forth and we just get them to record um, any prey items that are being returned by their cats, and then we just have them either collect them or photograph them for us, and we then identify what types of birds are being killed, um, whether there's a reduction in the number of prey returns when the cats are wearing the collars versus not wearing them, and get a better handle on what types of birds are susceptible, um, as well as whether these kind of collars can help to reduce uh, bird, bird kills. That's a fascinating research, Ken. What do you hope to achieve with this? Well, if we can find a uh, a mechanism for people to be able to, you know, take take part in in reducing the impact uh, that their yeah. their pets are having on wildlife, that's kind of be the primary objective. We're having a lot of interest uh, from people outside of Prince George uh, who would like to participate. And, and one of the things we're doing is just alerting them to this as a possibility. If you just use these high visibility collars, um, then you can you can potentially have your cats uh, you know, just contributing less right. to these massive numbers of bird kills that are occurring. What do you think about the, the whole concept of outdoor cats? I mean, this gets into kind of a sensitive area around you know, pet ownership, but some people think like, oh, I would never let my cat go outside, and other people think it's okay. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, and this is, this is a lot of where it, the issue is just not very simple. I mean, um, restricting cats to indoors has other consequences where it's been tried in other uh, jurisdictions, 
one of the main consequences that you have just having a restriction on, on cat movement is that you sometimes get uh, increases in rodent populations. And so, mm. um, you know, this is, it's, it's a complex issue. And so one of the ways that we're looking at trying to, to deal with this is, you know, for one thing, if you have a cat with a big visible collar on it, it's obvious mm. that it's an owned cat. It's not a feral cat. So it makes it a little bit easier for um, identifying owned versus feral cats. It may reduce uh, the predation risks. It also uh, potentially decreases some of the other impacts that cats have when they're going outside, like being hit by cars just because they're not mm. not being seen um, because they're, they're more uh, noticeable. Um, but I think that there's, you know, it's a it's a complicated issue. Rather than just having a blanket um, control on cats, which can have other ramifications, can we come up with a, a way that people can kind of keep control of their own pets, okay. um, keep a handle on them, and and decrease the the bird kills? I think it's a fascinating research project, uh, uh, Cannon. Thanks for coming on and talk about it. And maybe we can check in with you again later when you get some data in. So yeah, that would be that would be great by me too. And thank you okay. very much for uh, having me on the show. Okay, thank you for coming on. Now uh, we'll get in touch with you again because I want to I want to hear what the results of that research is.